we appreciate you uh, for joining us, uh, Jackson Lansing and Colin Kelly, writers of Captain America number zero and the upcoming Captain America Sentinel of Liberty. Also, Batman Beyond Neo Year. Um, that's that's more of a relatively new property for me, but I, I know Daniel's a fan of Batman. Yeah. So um, we're really excited to have you guys here. Um, and we're excited to be here. Why don't you tell us a, a little bit about yourselves to start off for, for those of those that live under a rock. <laughs> oh, wow. I, I love I love that we've gotten to that stage. Where the, Man, if you haven't heard of this, <laughs> right. uh, No, we're uh, so Colin and I are the the short answer is we are best friends who write comics together. Um, well, we, I mean, we write a lot of stuff together, but uh, in terms of this context, we're writing comics. Yep. Uh, we met in college. Uh, we sort of started as mutual uh, enemies, effectively. Uh, we were just similar. We were writing uh, very different stuff, but we had very similar friends. And so I think really early there was this sense that you know, there had to be like competition between the two of us. And yeah. then there's only, there's only room in this friendship for one of us. Yeah. There was a Highlander. <laughs> it was absolutely a, a Highlander situation for us at USC. And then um, uh, when we graduated, we went on a road trip and came up with a movie along the way. Uh, and on the way back, we wrote the movie uh, just as Ooh. like, literally just stopped at a, at a hotel outside Yellowstone and wrote like 80 pages in a day. And Holy realized shit realized that together we had a power that neither of us had really individually and that there was something really cool about our synergy um, that uh, really put us together professionally pretty early because that script got us repped and, and, you know, was our first like sale. And like, we, we did a bunch of uh, sort of Hollywood stuff for the next several years on the back of that script and that collaboration. So, you know, by the time that we were out of that, I don't know, three or four year storm, we, which was mostly Hollywood stuff, um, we had a pretty solid collaborative method going down uh, where we, it, you know, we, we, yeah, we still write individually here and there, but our process is very much joined at the brain. And so we started calling ourselves a hive mind uh, and started working in comics not long after uh, when we got pulled into a hacktivist at Boom. And then that became Joyride, which uh, eventually moved into Batman and Robin Eternal and got us over at DC. And uh, now we're starting up at Marvel. So we're kind of all over the, the uh, comic book landscape um, and our big, I think the, the thing that distinguishes us in a lot of uh, the comic space is that we aren't like a temporary partnership that's like two big writers who are like working together on a thing here and there. Like we are a, uh, a sort of, we're like a band. We're, we're, a, a, we're an existing super group. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> we're, we're, a, we're, a, we're a duo from the get. Um, and uh, it's, it's, a, it's a fun synergy. Nice. Yeah, and you know that's awesome. I I love it because yeah, you know you see it all the time where you know you get two big names together and they work on this project, but you guys are like disconnected Siamese twins. I mean, <laughs> the, the high and to the point of the hive mind. Um, you know, what's your process like as far as you know working on projects together, and do you see it more as a challenge? To work together or <laughs> all, all good work is a challenge. Um, but our process is really kind of developed uniquely as we've moved forward as a partnership. Um, the first thing that always starts is the conversation, right? Before we approach any project, we both have to agree that there's something interesting here. But the good news is inevitably one of us can find something that's interesting. And there's nothing either of us like more than hearing our friend tell a cool story. So once one of us has a hooks in the story, we start to both get excited about it. And then we start to argue uh, with the best <laughs> of intentions. 
you know, we've gotten a few times we've gotten incredibly heated at each other, but that's <laughs> how you know you're really crafting something that matters. Uh, and inevitably, we always come back to um, the central core thesis of the story. And once we have that, then it's a matter of outlining the ever-loving shit out of it so that we really know what we're doing. Oftentimes we'll uh, make a playlist. Well, Jack will make a playlist. He's much better at music than I am. We have our skills. And uh, so we can kind of <laughs> find the right tone. And then we inevitably take those pages, split them right down the middle. Uh, each of us go to our corners, get that stuff written, sit back down, mash it together, do a pass over everything. And by the time we're done, I don't think either of us know what pages were originally mine or his, or right. we effectively, after over a decade working together, we have a very similar creative voice um, and it just kind of meshes together. That's great. <laughs> it's amazing in itself. And yeah, you know what? What perfect relationship doesn't have arguments in it, right? That's that's how you work shit out, basically. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I, I think it's it, that's the thing that we really, uh, I, I think the, the sort of underline about a lot of what Colin just described is that there's a fundamental trust between the two of mm -hmm. us. Like, I trust Colin's creative instincts, and then I also trust him as a friend. Like, I trust, he's just, he's a man I've known for you know, a really long time. Like we've been yeah. doing this, we've been writing together for over a decade and we've known each other since 2005. So like we've, like there's been a real growth in our just individual relationship as two guys who have seen each other effectively at least twice a week for 17 years. Jesus. Like, yeah, like we just have a shorthand in terms of being able to understand where the other guy is and try to, um, like learn how to, and like we've learned to communicate that. Like I know how to communicate with Colin. He knows how to communicate with me. We know that even when we get superheated, there's a mutual yeah. respect that goes to the fundamental core of that. Like we can it's disagree like, fundamentally about something, but we understand that the other guy's coming to it with not just the best of intentions, but with a whole creative skill set and outlook, and that that has to be respected. So when we come to a mutual decision, it's because that idea won out over our two. Yeah. Uh, uh, sort of subjective opinions and, and, and worldviews. Cause we don't have, we're not obviously exactly the same person. We have our own instincts. We have our own, um, we definitely have our own taste in terms of like the art we dive into and the kind of stuff that we're interested in. Sometimes that overlaps and sometimes it doesn't. We, we call the process ego death. Yeah. Uh, effectively, <laughs> effectively it has to mean that there is no you, there is no me, there is only the best possible story. And the respect that we have for each other as creators means that either one of us can make that great story. And then the trust we have as friends means that we can disagree to high heaven. And at the end of the day, we're still gonna hug it out. Yeah. That's important. That's something you do need, especially working together. <laughs> yes, yeah. yes. I, I don't think it would work. I, I think the whole process would kind of fall apart if we had been put together. I think it only <laughs> happened because we found we found it ourselves. Yeah. Um, this wasn't like a, a, a arranged partnership. This was a you know no editor put us together. Like we mm -hmm. put it together, and then we kind of foisted it on everybody. Else. <laughs> <laughs> this, this was not an arranged marriage. <laughs> yeah, 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 exactly, exactly. So, uh, guys, uh, a question for both of you. I'm really curious, you know, let's just say, I'm not saying he's personally my favorite Robin, but this <laughs> tends to be the crowd favorite. You know, how come you guys went with Terry McGinnis instead of, say, you know, Dick Grayson or, you know, uh, Jason Todd or any of the other Robins and, uh, and, you know, made it into a Batman story with Terry McGinnis? 
Well, look, I think it starts from the baseline of, and there've been a couple of people who've worn the, the Batman Beyond, you know, helm over time. There was a whole run with Tim Drake. And we, we, we understand that the character's been around a, a couple of different mantles. But when you say Batman Beyond to, to us, you're talking about Terry McGinnis. And I think that's in large part because we both come from a, a, a real love of the, uh, of the show, um, of the world that uh, Bruce Tim and uh, that whole squad created. Um, like it is a, I think it's an iconic piece of sort of Batman fiction from our childhoods. And uh, that, which was actually something that I, I never watched when I was a kid. I watched it in college because Colin oh. <laughs> showed it to me like in a dorm room. Yeah. Um, yeah. I, I watched very different stuff when I was a kid. So I, I got into Batman and comics and a lot of that stuff in, in high school and college. Um, mm-hmm. And when we were approached to come on and figure out what a Batman Beyond story looks like, because that was the mandate. It was just, hey, there's 30 pages of Batman Beyond in Batman Urban Legends number seven. Dave Wilgos, our editor there, came to us. Um, we the, as, immediately upon sitting down, we were like, well, we, we kind of have to tell a Terry McGinnis story because Terry is the, he, to us, he is what Batman Beyond is. But at the same time, Terry McGinnis stories have been told, I think, kind of to high heaven. There's a reason you had to turn it into Tim Drake. There's a reason that people have played with his mantle a lot because at some point, um, Spider-Man, Batman with old Bruce Wayne in his ear, uh, <laughs> you, you kind of played that out. Like it's a yeah. it's a great concept, but once he's fought all of his villains, once he's fought all these like beyond versions of, of Bruce's old villains, once he's learned the secrets behind Bruce's past and history, once they've squared that trauma, then it's like, well, where is there left to go with this character? How do you push past the the archetype that now really feels like a like 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 t- Terry's kind of stuck in place? He's going to forever have Bruce in his ear. And so the reason we went with Terry and the reason we went with Batman Beyond at all, and the reason that that one story in Urban Legends turned into Batman Beyond Neo Year is that we came upon the, that, the, the fundamental what if of, okay, what if you, what if Bruce is no longer in his ear? What if Terry mm-hmm. has to be Batman on his own? What if Terry has to go through his own year one, um, very much influenced by the, you know, Miller Mazzuchelli you know classic the, the mm-hmm. you know is in both of our blood but what if you do that and you have to do it all through terry's eye if you do that all in neo gotham and you take bruce off the board what does that do and we found ourselves really inspired because it seemed to open up a lot of story avenue like a lot of opportunity for new villains for new allies for a new sense of neo gotham and most importantly for a new sense of terry's position as batman it gave us a chance to interrogate what it meant to be batman through Terry McGinnis. Um, and I, I think that's why we we glommed onto it so hard and it's become such a personal project for us because it gets to be an, an interrogation of a new kind of Batman and really looking at the Batman concept from outside of Bruce's context. And in, uh, and in doing so, hopefully understanding who Terry McGinnis is uh, as a character a lot better. And I think um, the frag- like phrasing this as a Robin question is really interesting because even Dick Grayson is meant to be Nightwing. Yes, he wore the cowl for a while, but we all know that Dick Grayson, Nightwing is his true happiness. That's his... his... <laughs> Terry McGinnis was never a Robin. He's only ever been Batman. And the fact of the matter is, he's not, he's not a sidekick of Batman. He is Bruce's replacement. 
Um, mm-hmm. I always think of uh, the end of Men in Black, right? When uh, mm-hmm. when Agent K looks to Jay and says, you know, I wasn't training a partner, I was training a replacement. And I think that's really key here. It's about Terry realizing it for himself. Like you are not a child. You are not, you are not the B team. Like you have to step up to the major leagues and now you have to be the, the hero that this city needs. Um, that kind of maturity and that kind of growth I think also mirrors us in a lot of ways who fell in love with Batman Beyond as, you know, as young men, as teenagers, as college students. And as we've grown, you can't maintain that role. You have to step up. You have to take the responsibility of your idols who you once looked up to. And you have to be, you know, in the parlance of a lot of conversations we have, you have to be a general instead of a soldier. And I think it really is a a fascinating opportunity then to do what you, to Colin's point, you could never do with Dick and you could never do with Jason. You can never do with Tim. Just to uh, understand a, uh, being, being trained into this role for years and years and years. And then at the end of Bruce's life for him to turn to you and be like, I don't know the answer to this. All I know is that you can be better than me. And man, if Bruce Wayne tells you that you can be better (laughs) and then dies, what are you supposed to do with that? Yeah. How are you right. supposed to live? Like, how are you supposed to make a world after that? Like, you just, now you are stuck in what seems to me like one of the greatest dark nights of the soul you can have, which is how, no pun intended, which is how exactly am I supposed to be better than Batman, the greatest of all DC superheroes? How am I supposed to take this mantle and be better than Bruce Wayne? I'm not this man. I'm my own man. And what does that mean? And like those questions just, they just generate story. They're, it's an it's a endless story font for us uh, right now and, and very exciting. So that's where Neo Year comes from. Nice. <laughs> That's uh, your response, uh, especially with saying uh, bringing up Ben and Black that actually gave me chills. I was like a really solid answer. <laughs> that's that's a hell of a sales pitch, especially for somebody like me that's that's new to Batman Beyond. Like, I'm sold, man. Like, whole series <laughs> order, paperback, hardcover, <laughs> whatever you want, man. Just send for, me a bill. <laughs> for, any, for anybody who's uh, for anybody who's who's jumping on, who, like hears about this and jumps on uh, the series, I do always want to preface by saying, go find Batman Urban Legends number seven. Get it on, uh, you know, get it digitally if you can't get it physically. But find uh-huh. that issue and read that story because that story is our zero issue. It's going to define some stuff. Uh, it's going to tell you how Bruce Wayne died, and it's going to. T- launch you into the story that neo year number one presents um i've had a few people review the book who like really like the book but uh they'll they'll review it and in their reviews they'll be like there's like a really strong metaphor about gotham city being alive and like terry seems to be really like interpreting it's like no you missed the issue where gotham city became a malevolent artificial intelligence it's not a metaphor it's real it's happening and like the, the interesting thing about doing having a zero issue sort of hidden before the the run is that i think it's going to take people a couple of issues where if they're just reading the run to realize how what the scale and scope of this book is and like what kind of story we're telling whereas if you read that zero issue in urban legends i think it gives you a nice thesis statement for like where we're going so i recommend anybody who's, who wants to read neo year definitely go find urban legends as well i think you'll find a, a real um a real benefit to that story and and while everyone should buy their single issues from their local comic shop every wednesday like good like good comics fans <laughs> if you are a trade waiter the zero that issue will be uh stuffed into the into the trade it will be in the trade yes of course because it's the first chapter oh yeah okay yeah definitely i'm gonna shop it <laughs> shop for it definitely getting both <laughs> also wait though to, to answer your very first question uh tim drake is the best robin <laughs> 
<laughs> I've, learned, I've learned not to fight him on this one. Uh, actually, I have a soft spot for Davian, but Tim actually is my number two. So you both. I we love got that. Him, <laughs> I love um, the other question I have for you guys is um, how, uh, you know, are you taking the Terry we know and love from the animated Batman Beyond series? Or are you guys adding like, you know, your own cool little fun twist to the Terry we know and love? Ah, uh, he is Terry. Yeah, he, he is. He is just Terry at the end of his journey. So if you've watched Batman Beyond, Batman Beyond is canon here. We are not, uh, this isn't like, if, if you want a sort of different take on Terry McGinnis, like a totally kind of rebuild of the world and the character, Beyond the White Knight is out there right now and is doing that. That is a, a that is Sean Gordon Murphy's like take on Batman Beyond, which is its own thing and gets to live in its own universe and play by its own rules. Our challenge was to take what people love and know about Batman Beyond, the canonical story and series, and we are writing the next fundamental chapter. We're changing a huge element of it and then pushing it forward into new realms. So he is the Terry you know yeah. and love, but he is learning a lot about himself and going through it um, yeah. in the same way that Bruce Wayne did in uh, in his year one. It's, it's a, he's going through not the same experience, but a similarly coded experience that's going to tear him down to his base and make him recognize who he is underneath the cowl so that he knows what the cowl means when he puts it back on. And, you know, Terry in the story, in the, in the, in the show was in high school, you know, he's 17 yeah. years old. Like this Terry has graduated. It's a small difference, but like, if we all remember what we were like at 17 and what we were like at 22, it's like, wow, they are completely different people. Uh, even though you share the same DNA. So I think that's a, just a really easy step up to be like, well, this is Terry, he's older, he's wider, wiser a little bit, and he's been punched in the guts way more. Yeah, uh, the, it's important to note that when Neo Year number one opens, Terry doesn't have the Batcave. He doesn't have Bruce, mm -hmm. he doesn't have Ace, he doesn't have his family, he doesn't have Dana, he doesn't have any of the people in his life who have given him stability. All of that is gone. And, and it has been replaced by a malevolent artificial intelligence in every camera and every building and every automated system of Gotham City that wants Terry off the board. So he is the one's Batman off the board. And so you have Terry as the lone standing legacy of Bruce Wayne and this series that we all loved, trying to figure out how to keep it alive, um, even though the world has ostensibly moved past it. And if you want to sort of see a metaphor for, you know, diving into a property and trying to understand its its value as, as times change. And as we look at cyberpunk, while we're living in a cyberpunk universe, you know, while we can look outside and see a lot of the innovations that Batman Beyond promised us when we were kids, right? The, the, the question of how do you make that relevant? How do you make that uh, uh, valid and viable and, and exciting? Uh, you know, all of that underlines where Terry's going as well. Like we're, we're trying to use the whole of the series to understand not just who Terry is underneath all of this, but who, how we all can view Batman beyond and how we can all view Batman um, trying to move forward. It's a, we're, you know, we're, you know, little stuff. <laughs> we're, we're taking, we're taking little swings that aren't risky at all. <laughs> gotcha. Yeah. And also you can, you know, plea the fifth on this one. I don't know how far in advance you can talk about it, but uh, I always found I always find that Bruce Wayne is a complex character. Also, when he's wearing the cow, um, if there's any flashbacks with Bruce, like how did you guys get into like the mindset or like what you know Bruce 
slash Batman would say this in this exact moment if he's providing any advice to uh, to Terry? That's a really interesting question. Um, I think we can we can tell you that part of our journey here was to look forward and not look back. Um, okay. I you know, read, read the story to find the, how it all plays out. But I think the thing is, you know, we've written Batman before. We have a really good, and we've all consumed decades of, of content of, of Batman stories. We all definitely have a sense of what Batman sounds like, certainly, and what Bruce kind of, what his ideology is. The neat thing for us was going back, especially to the zero issue and thinking about Bruce at the end of his life. Um, what does he think of? What's his regrets? You know, this is not the same Bruce Wayne that we all know and love. This is Bruce who's seen his successes and his failures. He's seen the world change out from under him. Uh, and with that kind of perspective, he knows things that a much younger Bruce just didn't, couldn't wrap his head around. And one of the things that we do here, as Jack points out, um, you know, in our story, Gotham itself has turned against him. It has been consumed by a malevolent AI. Uh, it is in every system. It is in every security camera. So the only place that Terry is safe to store his thoughts is uh, we say he has to go analog, right? He's keeping a journal. And in that journal, he will ruminate on things Batman has told him, on the advice that Bruce has given him moving forward and what that means. But not having an active Bruce Wayne in his, in his head to question, to um, unpack, to riddle out secrets that really is a big impact, right? Like, what does it mean? You know, my own father has passed away and I don't have the ability to have that conversation with him on the phone. You know, I have memories of our conversations, but it ain't like a memory can give you new information. Um, it's only about how you can unpack that information and reinterpret it to your modern context. Um, and I think that's really the key of how we approach Bruce, uh, Bruce and Terry moving forward. Wow. Yeah. Um... I'm sorry, oh, go, go ahead. ahead. Uh, I was go just going to say, and that was something that I really um, latched onto in the premiere issue was, um, you know, to your point, he's not in his ear, but there was that one, those few panels where he's kind of going back to the advice that he gave him about sticking to the basics and training. And, you know, it's, yeah, you know, he doesn't have him physically there, but he has the ideals and what he can remember of his training and advice that he's gone so you know it's almost like a spiritual yoda uh type yeah. deal right <laughs> but without but without that character being able to legitimate there right. the way that yoda is and i think that that's really important to us it, to not cheapen the idea of leaving bruce behind by trying to keep him around somehow that uh, that drawing that direct line and saying we're not bringing this character back this is not the story of the resurrection of bruce wayne this is the story of the resurrection and continuation of batman and how terry takes that on without bruce in his ear and without bruce dictating his every move um and in that way i mean very much look you can you can draw some parallels between like the larger luke skywalker storyline and 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 what it means to or or even like the the ray storylines but all of that still has these direct echoes, these, these ghosts that can come back and be like, you're doing good, kid. Bru Terry doesn't have that. For Batman to have that, it would be like Thomas and Martha Wayne over Bruce's shoulder all the time being comforting ghosts and telling him he's doing the right thing. I think one of the most excellent and poignant things about Batman is that he will never know if his parents would have approved of that decision. If his parents look down at him from heaven you know, or whatever, and look down at him and say, oh, that was, you know, good job, Bruce. There's a, there's a beat in Tom King's 
uh, run at the very beginning of, of Tom King's Batman run that I, I deeply love, where he asks, he thinks he's about to die, and he asks Alfred if Alfred thinks that his parents would have been proud of him. Because Bruce will never be able to know that. And I think similarly, Terry needs to never be able to know, would Bruce approve of how I'm doing this? And instead, he needs to know that I approve of how I'm doing this. I have decided that this is how I'm going to do it and uh, needs to move that forward. You know what, though? Now I am realizing the further we do have a really massive Star Wars connection uh, because one of our <laughs> villains that you're going to meet, uh, that you meet at the end of issue one, and you're going to meet a lot more of it as the series progresses, huh? does have a super rad laser sword. <laughs> it's true. We did get <laughs> a laser sword in that movie. Uh, but, then, but then knowing that we're like, look, lightsabers are cool, but I mean, ugh, boring. So uh, this villain's this villain's <laughs> laser sword is a is a shape changing hard light blade that can become any weapon he possibly needs. And That's uh, badass. <laughs> thank you. Exactly. We're like, uh, I'm a big sword fan. I fence. I do uh, long sword trading. I'm just a big weapon nerd. Uh, so getting to make a shape changing hard light super blade is just like. Wahoo! Hell yeah! Bro. <laughs> <laughs> That's part of the fun thing about Batman too. Is like for all the weight and all the emotionality and all the you know the, the darkness, it kicks ass, man. Like especially <laughs> Gary McGinnis, this is a kid who knows how to have fun, even if his life is fucking heavy, and you know he's mourning the death of his father figure. But mm -hmm. you got to kick some ass. There's a little punk rock in here. You got to get that sweet, sweet. <laughs> guitar solo. Yeah, we, we yeah. when we, we finished issue one, we went back and added some quips. We were like, we we're like, this kid, he's, he's a little, little too grim. We need to, we need to remember that Terry does, that he uses humor as a, as a, as a deflection mechanism uh, on occasion. And we got to make sure that's still in there. But everyone <laughs> should always listen to the Batman Beyond theme song before they read the issue for that. Week. Yes. <laughs> thousand, thousand percent. So really quickly though, I do want to go back. Um, I think you know, just going to your point, I think Thomas Wayne would have been okay, would have approved of what Bruce is doing. And sim and I simply say that because, you know, we have a Flashpoint uh, storyline where Martha became the Joker, and then you have Thomas uh, Wayne, be um, you know, being Batman. So I think he definitely would have approved of that. What's so your guys' take on that? Well, so uh, if you want our take on that, Batman Urban Legends number seven, man, is issue zero of Neo Year addresses this directly because as Bruce Ooh. is, as Bruce <laughs> And, and I, and I, and I, and frankly, I think it's, it's a place where um, our take is probably a minority take because it's not a, because it doesn't, um, it's not quite as much of a pat on the back as, as uh, you know, Flashpoint Batman would kind of make it out to be. I, I love Flashpoint Batman. I think he's really interesting, but I do very much think of him as an alternate universe version of Thomas Wayne. When I think about the actual, that actual moment in the alley um, and Thomas dying and Martha dying. And, you know, we've seen this alley scene a million times. And it's been a, a, a sort of personal, um, I don't know, I, I, obsession is probably the wrong word, but I've, I've been thinking about it for years, uh, that there's a, there's a real tragedy to that scene, not just because Bruce's parents are dying in front of him, but because in those moments before they pass, they could potentially see the man he could become. They could look at Bruce, this young kid, see the trauma in his eyes. And the last thing these people know is like, oh, our kid just got really damaged by our death. Like our nice, young, troubled son just watched both of his parents die. I, I can't imagine what he's going to do next. And so we have a beat in as Bruce is dying out and is looking to Terry and is telling him these sort of last secrets of his life. 
uh, he tells Terry that in Bruce's private moments, he worries that what he saw in his father's eyes was fear, fear of what, not fear of, of dying, but fear of what Bruce would become as a result of that death. Um, fear that Bruce would throw his life at trying to make up for his father's death rather than create his own life. Um, I, I think there's a real tragedy to Bruce's decision to become Batman. And I think the only people who can probably ever recognize that tragedy are his parents who are not there to recognize that tragedy for him. So my, my personal opinion is I, I think it's a 50, 50 shot, whether or not Thomas Wayne would have liked Batman. I think it's probably maybe even a 30, 70 shot that he wouldn't have. I'm, I don't think he's, he doesn't seem like the kind of guy who would be like diving into vigilantism um, or really, or even if he did it, in a very self-sacrificial way that he would want that life for his son, you know? And I think, mm -hmm. cause I don't, I, cause I think our parents want better for us. I think our parents want us to move beyond their conflicts, move beyond their problems, uh, you know, move beyond the way that they've been. And notice how I just said the word beyond a bunch. Ooh. That's not, <laughs> you know, that, is, that, that is very much intentional. And in taking on Batman beyond the point of Batman beyond as a phrase for us, isn't it's Batman in the future. Like, obviously that's what it means. <laughs> as we're writing it out, we're trying to make it mean something else, which is it's Batman beyond this trauma. It's Batman beyond this sense of needing to make up for that scene in the alley. We're taking Batman beyond the alley and trying to see what the character can become if it's if it comes from a different place and a different part of the heart. Oh, can you tell he's a writer? Woo. <laughs> you, you deserve a round of applause for that, man. Yeah. And you just completely changed my mentality and yeah, I, I can totally see it being more of Thomas Wayne realizing his fears come to life um, rather than having a proud dad moment. <laughs> yeah. so now I am yeah. picturing I'm picturing Bruce in the room and the bat has shattered the window and he's looking up saying, my father, yes, I will become the bat. And then the ghost of Thomas Wayne just appears and slaps that bat out of the air. So, <laughs> that wasn't me. That was just a bat. It was just a bat. <laughs> Like there's I knew even, I should have. I, I, I knew I should have opened the window. <laughs> I think there's even a, a scene. I don't remember where it is, but I think there is a scene between Flashpoint Batman and Batman where Flashpoint Batman is like, "You became Batman? Like, no!" <laughs> like I'm always, I'm really always stuck to that. I just, I think it's, it's so sad. I think the sadder that Bruce Wayne can be, the better. That's, that's the trick to writing Bruce Wayne. By the way, is he's, he's a, he's a man who is just perpetually sad but also so like has, has, has done everything in his power to be the best version of himself. So what does it mean to be just the, the, the saddest dude, but also the best dude? I, I, it, I don't find Batman all that hard to write. And maybe that means that I'm a bad Batman writer. I have no idea, but like, I, <laughs> I, I we, we, he was the first DC hero we got to write. When mm -hmm. we got brought in at DC, we got to write Batman and Robin Eternal with James Tynan and, and you know, Ed Brisson and Steve Orlando and Tim Seeley, all these like Genevieve Valentine, these incredible writers. And we got brought in, it was our first DC book. And the very first scene in our, you know, we, we split up our first issue and our first issue had half of it was in the, was in the, the present with uh, Tim and Jason on like a side quest. Cause basically Colin, I got handed Tim and Jason. They were like, you do the Tim Jason stuff. Cause it's kind of the B plot. And we we're like, excellent. We love yeah. B plot. Like let's, we'll have fun there and just like do some goofy fun time stuff with them and Bane and Asriel. And like, we did all of that. Uh, but then there was a whole past plot line that was very much like from James and Scott's perspective. That was about 
um, introducing this new character, Mother, and all of the, the secret history behind the Robins. And that had to be from Batman's perspective. And I remember my very first page was Batman like walking through Prague, trying to find the lair of the villain. And it had to have like Bruce's internal monologue. And Ooh. writing that first page and knowing that that was like, you were, you were stepping into this character's mind for the first time and that it wasn't, it was like, I don't know, I guess I've been trained to think like this character my whole life by pop culture. So by the time I sat down, he really did speak in a pretty direct voice to me. Um, I, I, he's one of those characters I've never had a ton of, uh, of trouble with, uh, though yeah. obviously I think that's the fun of doing Terry is that it, it, it is a challenge, is that figuring out Terry and putting him through this uh, gauntlet, he, he is a harder character to get right um, and one who requires a lot more interrogation. I have a follow-up question on Terry, but I do have a follow-up question on the story you just told. Since, you know, you're saying that Bruce is pretty easy to write. Um, one of the biggest things as a big Batman fan um, is now, I want to say ever since the New 52 came out, so probably 2009, 2010, uh, a, lot of, uh, a lot of my friends that I talk to personally say they hate how Batman is written because he's too paranoid and he doesn't have fun anymore. So what would your counter argument be? Do you think he really is paranoid or do you think there's more to it that a lot of fans aren't really, you know, getting into, they don't completely understand it, that sort of thing? Yeah, it's an interesting perspective. Um, the thing about being paranoid is to be paranoid, you need to imagine that there are threats out to get you on all corners. That's not, if it's true, it ain't paranoia, my guys. That's being prepared. Um, like, is Batman prepared? 100%. He's prepared for every single eventuality. But that does mean that every single corner, every single dark shadow, every single evil plan can be festering, and he can't let his guard down for even a moment. And I think that's one of the neat things about New 52 is they acknowledge that, and he also needs to do this to protect his family. And I think that's one of the things that the New 52 really kind of introduces is Batman is a dad. He's, he's raised a, you know, a handful of sons. He has a daughter out there. These people that, you know, the dark knight, the man who's alone. It's like, he's a <laughs> yeah. he loves these people more than anything. And yeah. he is going to sacrifice his joy to keep them safe. Yeah. I think he's the, he's the best dad. He's maybe the best dad in the, in the DCU yeah. because he loves his kids. And I think that's the thing that, yes, he's not having as much fun 100%. But he's so much, he's filled with love in a way that he very, you know, I don't think we've ever seen from him before. And from that love, yeah, he's, he can be mean. He can be angry. He can be passionate, but he doesn't need to be cold. Like even when he is methodical, it's from that position of, I need to protect the people I care about. I also think that he is a man who is more than most in the DCU. Certainly, as far as the Justice League is concerned, he's probably aware of this the most out of any of them because his mantle is self-created. That he is a symbol. That it's not just a matter of being Batman and like living his life and being a character, but that at this point, Batman has, and maybe this is just something that you know comes with time and, and, and we sort of have to accept as like a part of the character now because he's been you know, alive and kicking and, and, and killing it in pop culture for, you know, nearly a hundred years. That This is a character who knows his importance and knows that somebody on the Justice League needs to be the guy who's frowning and intimidating. That doesn't mean that he is a grumpy guy. 
It means that he plays a grumpy guy on TV, right? <laughs> it means yeah. that he, he, he knows that when he is in it, what his utility is to the Justice League is being the guy with the contingency plan, is being the guy who thinks about the worst case scenario, is being the guy who looks at everybody else and takes it seriously so that the people who wouldn't normally take it as seriously take it more seriously. But I think that underneath all of that, the best Batman moments to me are the, man, are the moments that he is that guy and then he gets that one beat in private with whoever it is where he can like give a little smirk and say a deadpan joke and the and the person can sit there for a second and be like, wait, did Batman just, did Batman just make a joke? And it's like, yeah, man, he did because he wants to remind you that behind there, he still is like, there's still like a good, relatively well-adjusted guy at the back of that who loves you and cares about you and wants you to be better. It's just, he knows that to do that requires him to be a hard ass. He's like a coach, right? He's like a personal trainer. Like sometimes these guys just take, they have to take on a persona in order to be the best version of what you need them to be. And I do genuinely think that that's a big part of how Batman operates. I think it is a, he's a man who has cultivated a symbol, a symbolic persona that he puts on that holds his family up, that holds the Justice League up, that holds the DC universe up, that holds Gotham up. Like to some degree, it also holds up all of his villains, <laughs> which is its own <laughs> problem, right? Like he, and, and that's why telling a Terry McGinnis story is so fucking cool because what you're doing is you're saying, hey, um, Terry, be the be the symbol. Be, yeah. be this thing to everyone. Be everything to everyone all the time. And like, Terry's not equipped for that. Terry is a man trained by Batman to be Batman who's never actually had to be Batman. He's had to be Batman beyond. He's had to be Batman's lord. Avatar he's been Batman. the avatar of Batman, right. But he's never been Batman. He had to make those decisions fundamentally on his own. And like, that's what our run is all about. That's what Neo Year is about delving into is what does it mean for somebody who isn't Bruce Wayne to have to wield this kind of power and how do they decide to wield it differently than Bruce did? Because if he comes to the exact same conclusions as Bruce did, why are we telling the story, you know? Damn. Wow. <laughs> I love it. <laughs> Can you tell that we have to talk out our concepts? So a lot of this stuff is like, <laughs> it's like we've, we've done a lot of thinking about this and it's, it's because we have to externalize all of our thought process. Right. Because of the hive mind. Yeah, you, you guys have been blowing my, my mind this entire interview, and I, I love it. I think it's amazing. <laughs> so I'm about to call my therapist after this interview. <laughs> <laughs> love it. Um, but no, I, I love this. Um, I'm, you guys honestly have me on board with Batman Beyond. Not that I was never interested. It just, I don't know. It, it's one of those things that's always on the back of your mind, but you just never know when to jump in. And hey, anybody that's listening or reading this, Neo Year perfect time to jump in but time first you have to read batman urban legends number seven seven <laughs> and, and read batman urban legends number seven you don't yeah you don't, you don't need to read it yeah but you should we have yeah. very specifically designed it so that you don't need to read it but you should start with one and then consider finding that zero issue to be like a little personal collector's treat exactly right? that's a little challenge for yourself just know that when we say gotham city is alive for once when it's not a metaphor Gotham is alive. That's all you got. I just, I just <laughs> no, we're not, we're not being like artsy and metaphorical. We're being quite literal. <laughs> yeah. And it's, it's funny because uh, one of the first reviews I read was exactly what you mentioned was they, they had like a whole like 
thought process of whether they you guys were just speaking in in a metaphor or if right. it was really a lie. <laughs> right. They're and, like they're like they're like he's he's like Terry's speaking in his own mind like he's Gotham City. And I was like, no, that's not what's happening. It's not what you think is happening. Not speaking <laughs> speaking of number zero issues, um, you also have Captain America number zero coming up. Um, so a, as much as you can reveal, what what can people expect to read in preparation for the new ongoing series that are going to be releasing? Well, it all starts here, man. Um, Captain America number zero is a kickoff issue. Um, it's a big, oversized uh, book that kicks off the next two ongoing runs of Captain America. Uh, there are going to be two, right? Symbol of Truth starring uh, Sam Wilson, which is written by Tochi Nubochi with art by R.B. Silva, and Captain America Sentinel of Liberty, uh, written by us and uh, art by Carmen Carnero. And these two books are going to be coming out monthly next to each other. They're going to be telling their own stories and kind of interlocking as we go. We're working with Tochi, but we aren't really like we don't want to saddle Tochi with our stories and he doesn't want to saddle mm -hmm. us with his he has a very specific thing he wants to do with Sam Wilson and uh which is taking Sam Wilson into the wider Marvel universe and really uh understanding how the whole and like whole Marvel universe deals with Sam Wilson Captain America because the characters never gotten to hold the mantle for a very long time and really just like tell those classic Captain America stories and really get into that that vibe so that's really where Tochi's going. You're going to see Deadpool team-ups. You're going to see, you know, all kinds of stuff. On Sentinel of Liberty, we're going to be telling a, uh, a, a very uh, sort of, it, it sounds self-aggrandizing to say, it's like a game-changing story. Um, but what we are is we're telling a story that takes a lot of secrets um, that have been long held about uh, not just Cap's origin, but about the meaning of the shield, about the meaning of his relationship with Bucky, about the way that uh, he needs to operate, you know, moving forward in the future and revealing those to Steve and Bucky and uh, focusing very much on their brotherhood, on their friendship and on um, what these secrets do to that relationship, uh, how these two men move forward in the future in, in very different ways. We're going to be shaking up uh, Captain America's uh, status quo in a lot of ways where uh, Steve is going to be moving home, Steve is going to be making new friends, and Steve is going to be encountering a whole new villain set. So, you know, we have two books that are going to be very much in their own worlds. Steve is going to be digging into the shadows while Sam stands in the light, and these two things are really going to be, um, you know, complementing each other and eventually crossing over, but for now, we're really going to be telling these individual stories. Except that, for... Uh, right. That said, we wanted to make sure that it really kicked off together. Yeah. So that's where Cap Zero comes from. And Cap Zero was just a fantastic experience for all of us because we actually wrote it with Tochi. Um, we were writing the Steve pages, he's writing the Sam pages. It was all much more like a jazz session yeah. where we were able to kind of pass pages back and forth and develop one cogent story uh, that shows off kind of what each of us are going to be bringing to our characters in turn, um, the voice that we're going to be landing uh, while tying them up in a uh, massive plot uh, by the biofanatic Harmon Zola. It's, uh, <laughs> it, it was really funny because so much of what we're doing in Captain America is new characters. We have a very similar vibe to what we're doing in Neo Year, where whenever possible, we're trying not to recycle old characters. We're trying to create new stuff, put new toys in the toolbox. It's been very much our, our objective um, on the Harbinger, which we just finished uh, on this uh, Captain America run and on uh, Batman Beyond as well. But 
once we realized that we were going to be able to do in the zero issue, we sat down with Tochi and we all said, okay, well, who's the character none of us are using that we all want to write? Like, is there a character that we just all desperately love and would just love to spend uh, 30 pages uh, just having a blast with? And we all just looked at each other and were like, well, it's clearly Arnim Zola. Like Arnim Zola is just such a blast to write. He's so big and Kirby-ish and mad science and wild. And frankly, since a lot of our both books are about taking Captain America stories and moving them into a new um, a new era that reflects a lot of what we loved about classic Captain America. Uh, not, not to say that we don't love the, the many very like socially conscious stories that have come out of Captain America in the past few years, Ta-Nehisi Coates' run, um, US of Cap. These are great stories and, and will have bearing on what we're doing, but it felt really important to make our own mark and to, and to make a shift uh, in the in the books from both sides. And so you're gonna be seeing a very like Kirby inspired, big mad science, global scope kinds of stories, not, you know, road trips across the US dealing with like very small town problems. We are opening up the lens and looking up uh, rather than trying to tell like very quiet, um, I mean, not well, some of our stories are quiet, but like rather than telling, um, I guess like slice of life stories, even though wildly yeah. we've made room for slice of life in all of that, which is I think the fun of the book. <laughs> yeah, let me let me step in a little bit. Just yeah, yeah. Um, like obviously we have so much respect for all of the rad Captain America stories that have happened, and I think you know you can look at them as Steve has been, especially after Secret Invasion. I mean, uh, Secret Empire. He's been really asking himself, what does it mean to be Captain America? Yes. What is this identity? What does it mean to you know wear the stars and bars? Um, and I think, you know, looking at Chris Cantwell's run, like United States of Captain America did a great job of answering that. I think coming out of there, Cap knows who he is, knows what it means to be Captain America more than he ever has, which meant that the playing field was free for us to then look at not what does Captain America mean, but what does Steve Rogers mean? Yeah. And I think that is really what going to be what people are, are going to find with our run. Like, obviously, Carmen's superhero stuff is unreal. We are bringing, as Jack said, you know, a... a a new threat, a new unpacking of the legacy. We're going to bring new characters and new villains that's going to threaten the world itself. But, you know, we really try and at least balance at least half of every book with Steve Rogers. Um, he is, uh, you know, Jack mentioned he's moving home. Like literally he's moving back to the, the, the tenement, you know, down in, um, in Lower East Manhattan where he grew up, right? He's, he's going to go to community college. He's going to learn how to be a digital artist, right? He's like going to try and catch up with the times and really ingratiate himself, not with the New York that he always wanted it to be, but with the New York it actually is. Um, we're not changing who he is. He's still a member of the greatest generation, but he is wise enough and evolved enough to realize that he needs to look at the now and become the kind of hero that, that now demands without sacrificing any of the strength uh, that he has been, you know, that he has had moving up to this point. And I think it's, it, that is why taking the shield and the symbol on it and starting to ask the question of what does that symbol mean? Not from a sort of esoteric, what does America mean perspective, but a quite literal, what does that star mean? What do those circles mean? What do those colors mean? Why is that symbol what it is? Because that's not the American flag. That's a symbol that we associate with Captain America. But why did that symbol get made that way? Why was it on the mm -hmm. shield? What does it mean and what secrets does it hold? There's a little bit of national treasure happening here in the midst of all of this, where we're starting to look at the hidden secrets behind Cap's um, uh, legacy and how not 
how that changes the perception of what Captain America is, but how that changes Steve's perception of the 20th century and of his history and his responsibilities moving forward into the next. So basically, I think the last um, many years of Captain America, really like since Brubaker and all the way through, has been about taking this character and making him, stripping him back and trying to really question every aspect of this character and make sure that he is clear about the legacy of America, the legacy of racism, obviously, the legacy of policing. I mean, this stuff has all been happening in Captain America for quite some time. Now what we want to do is, now that he has come, I think, gotten very square with his beliefs in terms of how he fits in the 20th century as Cap, as like a superhero authority figure, now we have to figure out how Steve fits into the 21st century as a man who sort of lives astride history, but also lives as a as a man with friends with a community um and i think that's uh yeah it's gonna be very exciting uh, but that again is really our run in terms of cap zero cap zero is about kicking that story off for both sam and steve so it turns out when you put them up against uh, arnim zola you get a real chance for arnim zola to tear both of them apart mentally a little bit uh which is the the texture of that book and really start to see, okay, what kinds of stories is Sam going to be running up against and what kind of stories are Steve going to be running up against and why should there be two Captain Americas? Why should this mantle be shared? Why should these two men have this and how do they work together in a way that no single Captain America could? I think those are the questions that we're looking at answering um, and addressing within Captain America Zero. Uh, and then beyond that, honestly, what you're really going to be seeing, like, bold underlined Mattia de Luis mm. doing Arnim Zola rocket action adventure. This is this is Arnim Zola doing a big crazy Arnim Zola plan, big mad science Kirby stuff, and Steve and Sam stepping into that and shutting it down. That's the whole book. It's one big action sequence, but we're trying to use that action sequence to reveal character on every page. And that was really the fun of this thing is we all sat down mapped out this action sequence from like a physical perspective. And then Tochi wrote, and then and Steve and Sam are in different places. So it was just like, great. These pages are the Steve pages. These pages are the Sam pages. We went back to our corners and we wrote, we came back together and fit it all together. And it was wild how little adjustment needed to happen because yep. we all knew exactly what we were doing and, and how to put it together. Like Tochi just kind of fit in the hive mind and we all became yep. a hive mind together on this book. Yeah. And yeah, that was my follow-up question was just how it was to um, invite Toshi into the the hive mind, but it looks like he's part of the cult now, right? <laughs> it was it was so wild on our first call. Like we have a lot of respect for him uh, as a storyteller, as an author, um, you know, as a luminary in a lot of ways. Uh, so getting to sit down, we didn't quite know what to expect. And, you know, not to blow his spot up too much, but man, he's a dork. And, like, <laughs> and, and so are we, exactly. We started speaking the exact same language almost instantly. And our editor just kind of sat back, Alana, um, uh, uh, Alana Smith. Thank you. Yeah. Uh, she just kind of sat back and let this kind of magic happen as we all just started riffing on each other. And pretty soon, like, I mean, we had six issues of comics mapped out in the course of like 40 minutes. It turns out we're giant Evangelion fans. So uh, we, we all just like, he, he, like Toji and Andy, he makes no bones about this. Like he's a giant anime nerd. So once we realized like, great, we can just talk in anime. Then it was like much easier. <laughs> we all knew exactly where we were um, landing. But I think that's the thing. It wasn't just us inviting Tochi. He also invited us in. He's mm -hmm. got 
a real perspective and a real vibe and a real thing that he's trying to do with Sam. And so inviting us into that and seeing how we could be added to his process in the same way that he could be added to ours was just a really um, unique delight. It's not something that we've had a lot of opportunity to do um, as, a, as a sort of duo to present our ego death with another person, you know, and, and to try to fit into their sequence and, and do so without, you know, years of mutual respect behind it. Like really just like we're relatively new friends. Um, but it is wild how immediately we were on the same page and we would pitch him stuff and he would go like, whoa, and he would pitch us stuff and we'd be like, whoa. Uh, and I, I think like you, you hear stories from your friends in the like X-Men office, right? Where they're like, they have these, you know, Krakoa has just been this like incredible place to tell stories lately because all the, all the writers are just throwing their craziest stuff at one another and challenging each other to be crazier and more interesting and more wild and more fashion and more whatever. And I think we're trying to bring a little bit of that energy to Captain America um, where, uh, where these books can really challenge one another to be wilder and be more thoughtful and be more interesting and be more um, uh, epic. Uh, and all of that stuff is, is I, I think going to make the books a lot better. Uh, I'm, I've been very heartened with how it's all turning out. No, that's that's awesome, and you know that that kind of leads into um, my next question. And, and you hinted at and not wanting to recycle characters, and I saw that one of the promo images actually had a a skull mask character. And, and yeah. I know you probably can't talk about it, uh, but I just want to know, like, how excited are you to finally see the readers be introduced to this character? Yeah. I mean, we're, we're, we're pretty thrilled, man. Like, obviously, this is a dream for both of us. Um, Captain America is really core to, and the same time we're watching Batman the Animated Series and Batman Beyond, you know, we're reading Captain America books. Um, I think he is just such an icon and just matters so much that getting to step into this role as, you know, for a while, for as long as we possibly can, the guys who are going to be put in charge of his legacy is an incredible honor and responsibility. Truly I mean, wild. But at the same time, we don't just want to play the hits, which means we're going to need to take swings. We are going to need to introduce things into this character and his life that, you know, we, we don't know what the fan base will think. Um, but we have a strong feeling they're going to love it. But <laughs> this will be the kind of the first test. Um, you know, we're not doing anything thoughtlessly. Um, this, no, this... If, you, if you can't tell, we have to think everything through or none of this works. <laughs> <laughs> so even if you don't agree with our thought process, I guarantee you we agonized over every decision. Yeah. So this this and the skull-faced gentleman, um, you know, I won't say that, well, let's just say that fans some can, guys on Twitter have figured it out. Okay, there's some traveling <laughs> a little bit of a mystery behind it. Um, but he is merely the tip of an iceberg. Um, yes. he is a clue that will unlock something even deeper, something that actually has already started. Yeah, if don't you if, oh, yeah, yeah, if you do a little digging uh, and go look for, in the same way that if you find uh, Urban Legend 7, you'll get a little taste into our Batman mythos. If you go find Devil's Reign Winter Soldier, wherein Bucky uh, does a, uh, where a, a, a tormented Bucky, an insomniatic nightmare riddled Bucky has to break into Wilson Fisk's mansion in order to find the secret files that may just hold some of the information that he has forgotten from his own past you might find a breadcrumb to some of the things you will discover in ba in Superman. <laughs> Superman. <laughs> Superman. <laughs> yeah. 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 Captain America, America uh, set in the liver. Yeah, the, the interesting <laughs> thing 
um, here is that uh, people are very are getting hyped about Skullface Gentleman, uh, and I'm ha I'm, I'm going to not use his name, but like uh, people are, I'm very happy that people are digging in on that, and then they're curious and they're wondering like, oh, is that Bucky? It's not Bucky. Uh, oh, is that this character? Oh, is it that character? Um, what I will say is uh, to Colin's point about the the sort of uh, he's the first step down a long line. Don't get too attached. Uh, this is going to be a long story with a lot of moving pieces, and that's just the very first step. But I love that people are hyped. Um, it's going to have a his identity has a large significance to what we are planning to do with this book and how we're uh, incorporating the book. And I think within uh, the context of issue one, you'll you'll be able at least to start to see that uh, and what we're trying to do with this character uh, and and the the wider uh, conspiracy and story that he introduces us to. Um, but he is, yes, the, uh, in that same way that like at the beginning of Captain America, Winter Soldier, the, the film, um, you know, it all kicks off with Batroc and you have that amazing Batroc action sequence on the uh, Lumanian star. Okay. That's, or Lumerian star. Um, that's, this guy is our Batroc. He is not here to run the entire plot. He is here to kick us off in a fun and unexpected way. So, um, or, or maybe he is. Yeah, I know. You actually speak to a good point because um, obviously we're, this is a conspiracy story. This yeah. is a story about mysteries and secrets and unpacking. And when we originally approached um, to, to tell this story, um, you know, we're like, yes, it's going to take us 12 issues to slowly unravel it piece by piece. <laughs> and, you know, they sat down. Um, they sat down with us and said, like, no, guys, like, get to the good stuff. And that was a really great piece of information. So, you know, we, yes, this is gonna be uh, riddled with secrets and we're gonna be unpacking it slowly for the fans, but not so slowly that you are gonna be bored. No, um, you'll know what's up by issue three. Yeah, we wanna get the story out there. We want this conspiracy to start to crack open so the fans can see what's going on because the mystery of what's going on isn't the point. Because once we find out what's going on, that's when that's when things really start to hit the fans. So as we say, you know, as Tom told us, kind of we want to get to the good stuff. I, I liken it very much to I think we're very different writers um, and, and are kind of going up against a different objective. But I liken it very much to what Donnie Cates did with Null in Venom. And like we know Donnie, we've been friends with him for a while. He's given us some incredible advice over the years and really helped us uh, navigate our way in this industry. Um, so this isn't at all to, to you know, rain on his parade. I mean, he, he's incredible and what he does is is brilliant we do something kind of different what i think we are trying to do something similar and in, in objective to what he did on venom which is once you get you get to the end of of venom number one and you get the first hints of null and you hear god is coming and you're like okay something's about to happen with venom we're about to open up a new toy box for venom that's going to open up a whole new range of stories by the time you know who null is what's going on with the necrosword how it ties to some of the thor stuff you've read how it ties to some you know okay now you know this thing is coming down the pike. And by the end of issue six, Null's on table. He's shown up. He's fought Venom. Like you've got that sense of Null. But then that's not the end of the Null story. That's just the beginning of the story that is going to take Venom on this whole run to get him to King in Black. Now I'm not saying we're getting to our own King in Black. What I can say is we're getting to that initial moment of, okay, now you're going to know who this character is. You're going to know what cap is going up against and you're going to know how that's going to really adjust his world um by issue five i can i can fundamentally say issue five of captain america sentinel of liberty changes the game um on this character and his context for a while and as we move forward into that um it's going to be a you know it's it's a new era and new saga for this character we're we're not aiming at telling a you know 
a one and done kind of short story. This isn't Neo mm-hmm. Year in that respect, where Neo Year is very much like six issues of just, you know, concentrated story. This is a longer Captain America epic. So fans should strap in, get ready. If you don't see your favorite character yet, hold on. Oh, we yeah. probably have a plan <laughs> for them. Um, I, 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 I can't go on Twitter now without uh, the Sharon Carter hive coming out and asking me when Sharon's showing up and I'm getting tired of saying it, but I'll just keep saying it. <laughs> I want them to know we care. Sharon is off the table for the first six issues. She's not going to be in the book for a little bit because she's going to be doing her own thing. It's tied to the story. We can't wait to get there. But um, in the early days, we're really focusing up on Cap and Bucky and uh, uh, looking at what this means for them. This is very much a, a two-hander of a book. And uh, we want to make sure that both men get their their time in the sun um, as we uh, as we build this new era for them. But when Sharon, well, yeah. <laughs> yeah, 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 Sharon's gonna hit the book like a meteor. So we're very excited for uh, her to roll in. We have some we have some exciting plans for her. So I'm uh, I can't wait for people to see what we're doing. It's honestly, even if our story was absolutely god awful, Matthias Luis and Carmen Carnero yeah. are so freaking good, man. Like Captain America Zero is so good looking. I've I've wanted to work with Matthias for you know, a while now, because I, 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 every time I saw his art, I'd be like, just blown away. Um, like Valkyrie and, you know, but this is just unbelievable yeah. work. And then Carmen steps in and it's like Carmen was born, not just born to draw Captain America. When we started this book, we sent her our big, crazy, wild pitch. Mm-hmm. And Carmen came back and said, I love this, but what I especially love are the scenes with Steve as a civilian. So can we really make sure that that stuff sings? And we were, and that was when we knew we had the right setup here because the book is about 50% the biggest, craziest, curbiest stuff we could come up with. And the other 50% is very small scale human character focused Steve Rogers story. Yep. And knowing that we knew that Carmen could execute the big crazy stuff. We worked with her on Gotham City Garage. We know that she has this ability. We've seen what she did on, on Miles Morales. Like she's an incredible action artist. But then to turn around and say, she's going to also make every panel with Steve Rogers something poignant. Yep. Um, that she was like born to draw this character. So when we do, we have an issue where Steve never puts on the, the suit. And we knew that that was going to work because Carmen could make the whole thing work with just Steve. Um, and that was a, it's a really exciting freedom to have because when you're in the hands of such an expert artist who thinks so much about the emotion and the emotional context of the story, mm-hmm. you really just have a, you have a partner in making the book as poignant and as focused as you want it to be. Um, we're, uh, we're very lucky to have her and she's a, a, she's a fundamental part of, of what makes this book work. Yeah, there's something incredibly powerful when a writer can, you know, you get your pages back and you're, yeah, you've written, oh man, your voiceover is so good. And this conversation is oh just popping off on all levels. And then you get the art back and you're like, wow, None of my words are needed. Yeah, I guess we can just <laughs> words off of this. There's no reason to have voice over here. He, you know, Steve Rogers is, look at his eyes. Like exactly. you can tell he's pining for the, you know, the woman that he loves. She's not here. We don't need to say shit. Yeah. Uh, and that is, and when writers can realize they can write less, I mean, you know. What a luxury. <laughs> what a luxury. <laughs> what a luxury. <laughs> yeah, and Carmen is absolutely amazing. And yeah, the way she you know, does the character acting in the panels is, is surreal. Um, I'm a big fan and the Miles Morales, yeah, the um, action scenes that you mentioned, it, it's all fantastic and you know, wait, wait, um, wait until I, you see what she, I want to, I want to, sorry, I hate to cut no, you off. No, no, you're good. I realized as you're saying, like those action scenes, 
here's the thing about Carmen. We, in our like first issue, I think we have a, we have a beat where we were like, cool. Um, and, we, and we could sort of pick this up from writing Dick Grayson. Cause this is a trick you do with Dick Grayson a lot. Um, so when we did Grayson, we, you know, uh, uh, Tom King and Tim Seeley used to pull this off with uh, Michael Yannan a lot, which was you show um, action in stages. So you'll do a splash and you'll see, you know, Dick Grayson leap from a roof, do a flip, flip off a, 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 a flagpole, land on the roof in front of you, but you're seeing it all in a single splash. We did like one of those with Steve in issue one and it was so well executed. Like it was so just beyond what we could have imagined that we just started putting them in every issue. And Carmen started really like leaning into it. And now it is a, as you start to see how she starts to make the action sequences in this book, like, like unique to this book. Like you're not going to see action sequences like this anywhere else because she has, she's like defined a new action style, not just for herself, but for this book. Uh, And it's, um, and we just kind of looked into helping her get there. Um, It's (laughs) just such a joy to watch um, because now there are, we have like, we have this tool in our toolkit that we've never had before because she invented it for this book like it's it's just awesome to see man like she's just killing it yeah um honestly when i saw her name attached to that and and rb silva as well on toshi's side it's yeah it it's it's amazing (laughs) what he did on powers of x was it it still gives me chills but i you mentioned uh devil's reign winter soldier and i wanted to ask you with you know with winter soldiers you know, you mentioned he was very tormented and he kind of touches on, you know, his feelings towards the the manipulation and all that. Um, you know, could you just tell me, is this something that's going to be touched on um, on your side of things? Oh, yes. Uh, <laughs> yeah, I mean, there's um, there's something I think when we were start first starting to break this and I'll, I'll take the words right out of Jack's mouth. Um, <laughs> there's something that's very strange about how Bucky was actually freed from the Winter Soldier mind control. And that's that he was effectively bonked in the head by the Tesseract, right? The Cosmic Cube cured him. But that's not what really, you, you can't magic hand, magically hand wave away like trauma. You know, PTSD isn't cured by a magical orb. PTSD is cured by hard work and doing the, the therapy and looking at yourself and, and really confronting your past, right? And that's the work that Bucky never has really done. He's been doing it in piecemeal, right? Uh, like throughout his time since that moment. But yes, it's, it's, it's this ongoing long process for him. And that's really what we wanted to look at with the Winter Soldier, uh, with the, uh, the Devil's Reign pieces. That's why he can't sleep. Like he's starting to realize there's so much of his life that he not only can't account for, but that he doesn't, hasn't confronted emotionally. And that's what bubbles up in your subconscious. That's what keeps you from being able to ever rest. And this is a man who cannot rest. And that is what's pushing him forward here. Um, he will always be moving forward. That's kind of what defines him uh, in a lot of ways. So looking at that and then asking ourselves, well, what does that truly mean? How is he going to confront who he was and how is he going to move forward as the man that he wants to be? And more importantly, perhaps, can that man be Steve Rogers' best friend? Or the Winter Soldier. Or the Winter Soldier. I love that. And and honestly, as much as I love Captain America, one of the first things I look at when I'm reading um, 
a Captain America book as a book he's going to be in it, just because I love him so much. It's not a deal breaker if he's not, but I'm such a big fan. But I have one final question for you guys. And, you know, I just want to say, obviously, you guys are experienced writers. Uh, I love the origin story. And, you know, you guys are obviously moving your your way to being the Bruce Wayne from your Terry McGinnis, if you will. Um, but, you know, with you guys inspiring the next generation of writers, um, I do have to ask, you know, what inspires you at this point in time to, like, continue to becoming the dark knight of, of your career? Uh, I, so, Jack, I mean, Jackson. Yeah, yeah, Colin. I think that's, that's, a, that's a solid move. I mean, I, we, do, <laughs> we, do, we do genuinely get to act as that. Uh, as that engine of inspiration for one another, which is one of the beautiful things about the partnership, right? It's like the, you know, like brass tacks, right? A single writer gets paid once, we get paid 0.5%, right? Because we we split every paycheck. So the the downside of writing with a partner is that you're, you know, you're ostensibly you're making less money, which really doesn't matter all that much when you're where we are. Like we run all of our stuff through a company. Like we weren't, we have a good balance for that. But the the benefit, like when people start off doing this, when partners start off, I think a lot of people have this problem where they're like, shit, like how do I even maintain it? Cause like you can't make enough as an individual to survive, let alone as a partnership, especially in comics where like the money's not super high. The upside of this, right? That's the downside. But the upside that makes all of that worth it is that every time that you're down, every time that you don't have a book coming, every time you miss a pitch, every time you don't sell that movie, every time the novel is hard to write, whatever. Every time you're working on this thing and you maybe can't make it through on your own, the other guy is there to reach down a hand and help pull you up. Like we do really keep one another going through our hard times um, because we're not just partners, we're friends, right? And so I think that's a big part of it. But that was, uh, that was my way of trolling Jackson to give me time to think of a real answer. Beautiful. <laughs> well, man, he, the, the other thing about this is that he, he now knows me well enough to manipulate me. <laughs> um, but I can speak to both of us a little bit because one of the things that most inspires us is the world outside our windows. Yeah. Um, from the very first, when we sat down to write Hacktivist, the thing that inspired us to work on it was watching as the Arab Spring, as Twitter, as social media was being used to activate an entirely, um, you know, uh, a, a group of people who were being squashed, whose culture was being robbed of them, and watching it, the bravery as normal citizens stepped out into the world, stepped out into their streets and said, fuck you, to the powers that be. You know, the, the kind of um, the kind of trauma that our nation is dealing with, you know, the news every single day we're looking at and we're saying, where are our heroes? Like, where are the people who are supposed to be saving us? And the truth of the matter is we have to be those heroes. You know, I'm not going to run out there you know, with a cowl, because I'm not the knight, I'm a writer, you know, we all we can do the weapons in our tool belt is telling stories that can inspire and that can illuminate, and can maybe show people a path forward, um, even if it's couched in, you know, a super rad shield throwing, handsome blonde man, right? Like, that's, yeah. that's what we want to do. And that's what we want to bring to our stories. I, I uh, to, to jump off of that for a second, I think one of the things that really inspires me is I, I know several activists who read our work and who came up on our work um, and who do real world activism and real world work out there now um, that's so far beyond what we could uh, you know ever achieve. And I, I find it extremely inspiring to know that somewhere maybe Joyride is on a bookshelf of somebody doing the real work. You know, I think that's the, the best we can hope for um, in terms of how we can affect 
uh, that world beyond you know our voice and our vote. Um, I do think that as you look at Neo Year and Void Song or Aquaman Flash thing, which we haven't really talked about, but you know is also coming out from DC um, or Captain America or Harbinger um, or even Star Trek uh, Year Five, which we just finished, mm-hmm. um, you will see over and over again in our work a running refrain of rebel stories of stories about looking at the status quo, not just from a sort of um, an individual perspective, but from a systemic perspective and finding ways to challenge those systems. Um, You will find a lot of stories in our oeuvre about looking at large scale systemic problems and trying to understand how you navigate your world when when fundamental injustice and fundamental inequality and fundamental uh, uh, just cruelty and evil is foisted upon us through these systems that have become very entrenched. Uh, and if we can help get people to start questioning some of those systems and think about how they can do better for the largest amount of people, uh, you know, I think we will have done um, our own little bit of heroism as, as, as maybe uh, self-aggrandizing as that sounds. I, I hope people understand it's, it's only self-aggrandizing because otherwise the job is just sit, sit around with my best friend and come up with cool shit for Batman to do, yeah. which is, I mean, <laughs> an, awesome, an awesome job, but we do try to infuse that with meaning as much as we can. No, of course. And honestly, I mean, just to speak from my experience, I mean, anybody that creates any sort of entertainment is also a mental health activist, in my opinion, because, mm. you know, you you can't even count the, the amount of times that somebody might find themselves in a dark space and something as, you know, as simple as a comic book or a video game, movie, anything can, you know, just be that that lifeline that they need to get them out, even for a day or for a few hours. And, you know, just from my experience, most recently, um, you know, I, I deal with mental health issues and I got an email um, on a bad day from Valiant and it was to issue number one of the Harbinger. And honestly, like, just spending those 30 minutes reading about a character I had never heard about. It it was honestly like just what I needed for that day. And and it might be a bandaid on a much bigger issue, but honestly, you guys do a lot more by creating what you do. And, you know, I just want to thank you guys for, for speaking with us and for everything that you guys do. Um, I love your work. Love you guys as people. Now (laughs) I've got to know you a lot better. Um, But, you know, I, I really appreciate everything you guys do. So I do want to thank you for your time. And thank I know you. our time is up, but just want to let everybody know that they can pick up Captain America number zero on April 20th. And then we have Captain America symbol of truth coming out in May. And then Sentinel of Liberty will be available in June. Um, but thanks again, guys. I appreciate the time. Hey, we really appreciate you taking the time to chat with us. Very much. Thank you so much. We'll hope to do it again soon.